Welcome back to How AI Built This, uh, the podcast dedicated to entrepreneurial and data storytelling. Um, thank you, as always, to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring the show. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Andre Franca, um, who is the Director of Applied Data Science at Causal Lens, a deep tech company who are on a mission to develop causal AI. Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I have so many questions already about causal AI, but I'm going to hold them because we'll do a quick run through, kind of a quick tour through your career so people understand kind of your background. So uh, you kind of got an academic background um, doing a PhD in theoretical physics. Uh, That's right, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did my PhD in physics. Uh, I was studying black holes back in Munich uh, while I was in academia. And then, yes, after after I finished my PhD, I did a standard thing that uh, physics PhD end up doing when they realize that uh, staying in academia is very, very difficult. So I became a quant. Nice. No, so I was going to ask you that. So we've not, uh, one of the reasons we always ask about an academic background or or whatever someone's done is just to see if there's any kind of correlation between kind of data people's backgrounds. And to be honest, nobody's done like exactly the same thing that I remember, but we have had quite a lot of people that have got a physics background of some description. But like you said, yeah, it's hard to stay in academia. So was that, at one point, was that kind of your plan maybe, like during your PhD that you might have stayed in? academia or did you realize quite quickly that you were probably going to have to get out Uh, until i guess my second year of phd i still had uh hopes of staying in academia but as time progressed i realized that uh you know you have to sacrifice a lot to stay in academia it's i mean to some degree you have a very good life but there is no certainty that you will get a permanent job and the longer you delay the decision to quit academia the harder it is to do so uh, I figured that it would be smarter to just rip off the mandate, uh, go straight into the industry and not well any longer, uh, you know, doing postdocs because that like if I ever wanted to leave afterwards, uh, I knew that it would be it would be more difficult. Yeah, no, you're right. I think most people either, like you said, rip off the mandate and get into work or they stay <laughs> in academia for a long, long time. Like there's not many people that only do it for a few years. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your physics background, uh, it kind of, it lends itself quite well to data roles, I suppose. Like obviously you went into, you said into quants first, but kind of anything with large amounts of data and trying to make sense of it. I mean, did that, is that why you kind of got towards that route when you decided to leave academia? Yeah, exactly. And and I think that uh, it's also a question of availability of options because uh, the banks and now technology companies, they are looking for people with uh, strong quantitative skills. And it's, it's not only, uh, I don't know, data processing, it's not only data analytics, but it's also to think about uh, the problems in a more scientific view. I'm guessing that as a physicist, you're basically a problem solver full time. Uh, and, and that is a sort of skills that often uh, these companies are looking for, essentially to, you know, get the data, to think about the model, to try to uh, do hypothesis testing, and then to basically construct, like, a, apply the scientific process to to the data science, I mean, data science, I guess, uh, the name already has it, but to really apply the scientific process on, on, the, on the data analytics. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, it's probably a good way of thinking about it. Like solving problems is what people who work in data science are kind of paid to do. And I suppose some people maybe 
struggle with that part of it. Whereas if you come from like an actual scientific background, that's kind of just part and parcel of your life. Um, so no, that makes sense. Uh, and you mentioned, so you went into the bank, so you kind of went from academia to the exact opposite of academia and uh, you joined uh, Goldman Sachs I think was it, did you join Hong Kong straight away so from PhD in Munich and straight over to Hong Kong yeah exactly I, I wanted to do the complete opposite so I went into a big bank I went to Hong Kong pretty much the uh, other side of the world uh, it was a great experience I can't complain it I loved Hong Kong I actually really enjoyed my time working at Goldman Sachs in there and, and to be fair, the work that I was doing was also very academic in a sense. Uh, as strange as that sounds, I joined a, a team that's called the model validation team. The, this team, it's responsible for ensuring that the models that the bank uses are actually fit for purpose. Uh, meaning that uh, if, you know, there, there are many divisions in the bank that rely on quantitative models for their decision making. And our team essentially looked at these models from an independent point of view and then tried to, you know, uh, break them and then to, to figure out what's the worst that can happen. Like, is this model really doing something useful or uh, it's just garbage? Uh, so, yeah, this, this was our job. Of course, that at the end of the day, you, you do have some KPIs that you need to fill. We do have some regulatory constraints. There are a lot of red tape as well into, into how things work. But ultimately, there is a big academic component in there, which is like really assess the quality of the models. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think we've talked about this on the show before as well with, with at least one of our guests. But that kind of investment banking world uh, is probably one of the first that kind of really adopted what we now would call like a data science function. Like they had lots of data, they had lots of customers, they had lots of transactions with, with kind of money coming in and out. So they wanted to analyze that. So you were probably kind of in with a company that was ahead of a lot of others, right? Like in terms of how did they approach modeling? How did they pro even just approach statistics? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you look at the history of how these quant functions developed within banks. It goes back to the 80s. As soon as, you know, the computer became a thing, people looked at it and thought, okay, how can I use that to make money within capital markets, which is, I guess, a natural thing to, to us. And then the natural answer is, I don't know, uh, get some uh, mathematicians and physicists and then have them build models for it. And it, uh, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense, I think, because there is so much value I mean, monetary value to be to be untapped in there uh, that the banks are quick to adapt in that respect. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so you pretty much worked your way up, like, like you said, working in Hong Kong, and then I think you ended up in Frankfurt in a kind of senior position. So kind of overall, it sounds like you really enjoyed your time at, at, at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, uh, I, I did. I, I can I can complain about about the work that I was doing. And then uh, the, what happened is Brexit. Uh, Brexit happened and then it changed a lot of things. And it's still changing. I mean, you, you still have a lot of uh, people moving to Frankfurt right now. But he, here is, a, here is how, how this works. So each bank, like you think about Goldman Sachs as a bank, but it's actually a myriad of legal entities spread around the world. Uh, you have one legal entity in the UK, one in I don't know, Japan, one in New York, and then they're all under the same umbrella, but they respond to different uh, regulators. So uh, prior to Brexit, all the banks that had their uh, 
had this legal entity in London, they were able to transact with the rest of Europe because they had this you know, passport rights, essentially. So if they are regulated by the PRA, the principal regulatory agency in the UK, uh, they're able to access the whole European Union. That was before. But now, if they want to keep doing business in Europe, they need to set up shop in Europe and then respond to the European Central Bank and then to, you know, German regulators, Buffing and all the individual regulators within the countries as well. And so this was the reason why I moved to Frankfurt, uh, because we, I mean, Goldman at that time, they needed to essentially convince the regulators. I mean, convincing is, a, is not the right word for it, but essentially to demonstrate to the regulators that uh, they had uh, very solid uh, controls over their models. And that was my role in Frankfurt, uh, to be the person who talks to the regulators and then shows them how, how, the, how the firm takes care of their modeling. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. And yeah, just another example of Brexit making a mess of everything. Um, but we won't get into that because that's a different podcast. Like I said, a bit of a whistle stop. So in about nine minutes, we've just talked about your entire Goldman Sachs career. So we're definitely not doing it justice. So if anyone who's, who's listening wants to learn more, I'm sure you can pick um, Andre's brain about it. Um, but we're going to fast forward to kind of around this time last year, like almost. So kind of June 2020, mm-hmm. you joined a company called Causal Lens as Director of Applied Data science. How did that all come about? Uh, and tell us a little bit about your kind of role with, with with the new team. I was ready for a new challenge. I think that this happened with a lot of people during, right during the peak of COVID. I think that a lot of uh, deep introspection was going on around yeah. the world. And then with me, that resulted in uh, I want to do something different. I want to participate in a project that uh, is actually. I, a project in which I believe and I, I want to help grow it. And so I found Causalance. I got in touch with the founders. Uh, and the mission was a really interesting mission from my point of view because it resonated with some of the complaints and some of the criticism that I had with the current state of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, so yes, it's been roughly one year since I've joined Causalance in the role of uh, Director of Applied Data Science. And to be fair, uh, my role hasn't changed much in the sense that now, of course, I'm much more involved in developing models. But given that I'm leading a team which uh, is developing models for our clients, it's my responsibility to act as a second line of defense and then to make sure that what we're building is uh, extremely robust and makes perfect sense from a quantitative point of view. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And what is the kind of kind of causal lens mission? And and we talked about um, causal AI. So, like, if people don't know what that means, um, how do you guys explain it? Yes. So uh, maybe maybe I give you a little bit of a deep dive into what that means, causal AI. So here here's what machine learning does: it finds patterns in data, essentially. It's looking to maximize some sort of objective function, some measure of quality that is very quantitative. So if you want to think about it, uh, like, uh, you know, if you, if you have a data set that has ice cream production and shark attacks, it's going to find that there is this very big association between ice cream production and shark attacks. And then it will learn to use the number of shark attacks in order to predict or explain the amount of ice cream that is being produced and sold. Uh, 
So it works very well in some cases, for instance, uh, for you know, uh, computer vision. If you want to understand whether you're seeing, I don't know, a cow or a camel, uh, it's very good at doing that because it will find these patterns. Uh, but at the same time, in some others, in some situations, it's not very good. For instance, time series forecasting, it does a remarkably poor job because it finds patterns that are very much spurious. Uh, for instance, finding shark attacks as predicted for ice cream sales. So this is step one, which is uh, like, what's the current problem with the machine learning? And then the second the, the, the question that we're trying to answer is the following, right? How can we teach machines to understand cause and effect? Because if you, if you have a machine that can understand that there is absolutely no way in hell that a shark biting someone will cause uh, ice cream sales to increase, then you, you have a problem solved because you got rid of all of these spurious correlations. Essentially, you, you can look at the data and then you see that in reality, it's not that uh, ice cream is being caused by shark attacks. It's just the fact that both ice cream sales and shark attacks are caused by high temperature, right? More people go to the beach, more people want to eat more ice cream. So this is the idea, is that uh, looking at large data sets, how can we disentangle what is true, cor- what is true causation, like you know, high temperatures going to the beach, from spurious correlations? Uh, and then by doing that, then you solve your first problem, which is uh, how can you produce actually good models to, to forecast things into the future? So this is a company statement, which is uh, we want to understand causality within machine learning, essentially teaching machines to learn about causality. And then from there on, how can we apply it to the real world, uh, which is what my, my team is responsible for doing. Nice one. And is that part of, so we talked about this a bit before the show, but there's kind of, you you and the team kind of believe there's some pretty obvious issues with kind of black box machine learning solutions um, and kind of how they go around understanding AI. Is that what is that one of those examples you mean about kind of the, the, the temperature is actually the cause or is that something different? Absolutely. That, that is one. And that's very immaterial because, I mean, to be fair, like who cares if you get this wrong? Uh, so it's it's not gonna change the world if you if you miss your I don't know ice cream production targets. Uh, having said that, uh, like think think about image uh, computer vision, right? Uh, in there, you're 100 percent reliant on black box models. Typically, for people who understand the the the, the machine learning you know world, very large neural networks that have you know, billions of parameters, uh, if not trillions. And now, uh, let, let me give you another example in there, right? I, I show this model, a camel and a cow, and then you ask the question, why did the model identify a camel as a camel and a cow as a cow? Uh, it turns out that oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes, if you put a camel in the, uh, if you put a cow on the beach, it's going to think that it's a camel because it looks at the sand around it and then uh, it just thinks that it's in the desert. And since it's in the desert, it must be a camel. So, uh, you know, it's training on the wrong things. Uh, and there is no way for you to know that because it's a completely black box model. Of course, that again, like uh, you know, there is very little material impact of using, of, you know, misclassifying cows as camels. <laughs> Uh, but if you think about, you know, uh, 
law enforcement agencies using computer vision on a daily basis to identify suspects, you start asking the question, look, I mean, it, it, is it really a good thing for us to be basically relying a big chunk of our society on models that, I mean, nobody really understands. And it's fine if a, a handful of people really understand what's going on and they're super smart and they, they, they know exactly what's going on. But by definition, these models, they cannot be understood. They were not designed to be understood. They are completely black box. And uh, I think that this is a, a, a problem that if not us, someone we need to solve because it's kind of imperative for society to progress further and benefit from artificial intelligence that we create models that are understandable from the start. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's a really good way of putting it. And it is a little bit like um, like driverless cars, right? We've been promised driverless cars for, I don't know, five, 10 years now. And I feel like that must be one of the big issues if they're using black box solutions for recognizing dangers or threats or whatever it might be. If nobody understands it, then it will be hard to get that right because all it's going to take is one accident where it was the computer vision's fault and it will just stop everything. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with you. And, and I think that even if you like, suppose that you live in this perfect world where you rely on these black boxes and then you completely drop the number of accidents. Uh, but then there is this one incident. This one incident might be all that you need to completely lose trust in, the, in, you know, in these solutions, even though humans are much worse drivers than, than even the, the worst black box, uh, probably. But, uh, uh, but but this is a major issue. And in addition to that is the fact that because you cannot understand what's going on, there is also the possibility that they are exploited. And by exploited, I mean like a, a bunch of kids, maybe they're going to, you know, uh, paint some uh, stop sign on the back of a van. And that's all that you need to cause ha- uh, havoc, right? Because you all the, you know, very smart uh, driverless cars behind it, they cannot understand that this is actually just a, a fake sign, not a real one. And it's a, it's a, it's a major, like, and put it away, right? We, we, we've been promised driverless cars for so long because the first 95% of the development, they are much easier than the last 5%. And the last 5% are kind of like these edge cases that you don't necessarily know what's going on. So you can have cars that are driving perfectly throughout the street through, I don't know, 99.9% of the time. But the, it's those rare exceptions that are essentially the kind of make or break for the technology. And uh, and these, I think, would take a long time. And even Elon Musk recently recognized that, that uh, the current state of machine learning probably is not sufficient to overcome that, you know, 0.1% in which humans actually giving credit to, to us, which, which humans actually do quite well compared with machines. Yeah. No, and it's one of those things where every time a Tesla crashes, they have to come out and say that, it wasn't the AI's fault and like it, the, the, auto, the autopilot wasn't switched on because yeah, you're right. That trust isn't there yet. So um, I can see how it could potentially be a big issue. And you mentioned the law enforcement part. Mm-hmm. Um, this might kind of segue onto that quite nicely, but it's an area that we've not touched on loads on the show actually, um, but it's looking at kind of regulation within AI 
and I think I'm right. I, I don't know if this is you and and causal lens or, or just kind of kind of you're driving this, but that you guys are kind of big believers and that there is actually a need for some more regulation within AI, right? Yeah, absolutely. And even even before uh, talking about regulation, because I think that uh, people's uh, uh, you know you, you can you can see the face of fear in all the in all the practitioners around the world whenever they start talking about regulator regulation because you know big government is going to come it's going to delay progress it's going to be terrible for everyone but even before we mention regulation i think that one thing that is necessary at this point is really accountability uh because i mean it, like law enforcement is, is a is probably the most extreme example of application of ai but even things that are material but not as material for instance human resources Right, you send a CV. There is a machine that reads your CV and completely disqualifies you. Why did that machine disqualify you? Was there any cue in the CV that maybe told what your gender was, or maybe it misinterpreted—not really misinterpreted—but without anyone noticing, it discriminated against you because of some protected class. You don't—you don't have a way of answering that question. Or if you get fired because I don't know some automated metric evaluator that is based on machine learning decided that you you suck at your job uh, how can you how who can you sue right how, who, who who is responsible for that piece of code at the end is like and and that's the problem it's a lack of accountability it's a lack of someone whose neck is hanging on the fact that if that model screws up he he's going to be the one that will have to respond uh, for the poor performance of that model and and before we even talk about regulation, I think that this is what's necessary, is more accountability. And then I bet that you don't necessarily need to do anything drastic in terms of regulation. You just need to say that, look, each model that is material needs to have someone who is, you know, who needs to be accounted for the, the decisions of that model. So if that happens, you see that there is going to be a lot more internal pressure to make sure that people really understand what's going on within machine learning models. Yeah, because there's quite a lot of like machine learning models out in the wild that just a single data scientist has built for their company that actually has quite a big impact, like you said, on either human resources or hiring decisions or whatever it might be. Okay. And yeah, the the person that built that model is only a small part of like a big, big kind of machine. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't really put the blame entirely on them if something was to mess up, but also the company wouldn't take the blame because they would just say they didn't build it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I think that this is a, this is a big part of the issue, which I think that there is a big disconnect between the people who use the model and to some degree they make money based on the model. Uh, but uh, for them, they, I, I don't know. I don't. I didn't build it. I don't care about it. There is a developer right there, and you go to the nerdy guy, and then he's like, "Okay, they gave me the data. I built the model. I gave it to them." And then where is in between, right? Who who is actually uh, who has their name attached to the model? So uh, yeah, I think this is one thing that needs to be resolved for for material applications of machine learning. Yeah, and we even see that um, it was a while ago now, but Amazon built a really clever machine learning system to review CVs, but they trained the data on all of their past hires, and it was all middle-aged white men. 
<laughs> so they were rejecting women and people of ethnic groups because their data and what their the the model wasn't wrong it mm-hmm. was just it was just trained badly yeah. um but whose fault was that and it's like uh, it's yeah it, it's it's a difficult one mm-hmm. um but would you think that would it need like an independent regulatory body probably outside of government as well because let's be honest they don't have a clue what machine learning does uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm with you there. I think that the government does not have a clue what machine learning does. And I think that's part of the problem uh, because if the government actually invested in having, you know, competent internal regulatory bodies for machine learning, uh, then you, you could actually have an informed conversation with the government that uh, was actually specific and try to address real issues. Uh, I, I think that we're we're still a long time, uh, and to be fair, there has been already progress within the EU in implementing regulation on AI. Uh, but I think that the governments are only now starting to catch up on what machine learning and artificial intelligence really means, and what they need to do internally to monitor and ensure the safety of that model. Because to some degree, they are completely clueless about the long-term consequences. For instance, the one that you mentioned about Amazon, that's a perfect example of an unintended consequence of the usage of machine learning, which may have devastating long-term consequences for society in general, if used by many, many different practitioners. Yeah, and if Amazon are getting it wrong, how many small to medium-sized companies are getting it even more wrong. And also, I think the regulation piece probably comes into that kind of law enforcement, big brother type argument, because you don't want to hand, I mean, I was going to say with all due respect, I don't really care, but you don't want to hand the UK government a black box solution where it, it claims to identify, I don't know, criminals or, I don't know, something to do with coronavirus. Like, they're just going to make a mess of it. So, if if there was regulation or an accepted kind of usage, then you could maybe see it working. But I think the law enforcement one is probably quite difficult because people don't like that idea. Like I don't yeah. think people I don't think people will ever buy into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. But it is a problem, and it is a problem that we we need to to face right now because there are many countries in the world in which that is already the standard practice. And to be fair, uh, I'm uh, I'm slightly pessimistic about uh, the idea of accountability within these applications because you know it it's actually so easy to build these models and to deploy them and then they work perfectly for 95% of the time. And then are they really gonna subject themselves to a stronger you know uh, kind of stronger requirements in terms of compliance just to fix those, you know, 5% or 1% or edge cases uh, that may happen. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. But from from our point of view, right, what, what we, I think that the, the tug of war right now in the machine learning community is they are afraid that uh, AI regulation is going to be, a, uh, is going to basically stop progress or delay progress because the government doesn't understand what it's doing. Uh, different sections of the government, they don't want as well to have uh, 
basically external auditors going into their models and then trying to figure out what's going on. For instance, law enforcement, that's a, that's a great example. Uh, and so there is actually very little support for these regulators, uh, for, for these regulations, because the common person who is going to suffer from the consequences of ML don't understand what's going on and they don't understand how uh, already you know, machine learning is already shaping their lives on a, on a day-to-day basis. So it, it ends up being a very tricky, sensitive subject because there is just a handful of people who actually understand the long-term consequences of you know, poor models and are actively speaking out uh, in order to, to try to put pressure on governments to control it. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely going to be a difficult one to, to win them over. One of the things that kind of comes up on the show again and again, and you'll probably have a, an input into this because because will work with a bunch of clients, right? So you have to work with clients and, and try and help them solve their, their issues. Yeah. One of the things we, we kind of, it's almost like a, a recurring theme is getting the business side of either internal kind of stakeholders or, or kind of um, if it's with your clients, getting kind of the non-technical, getting the business people on side when it comes to using kind of AI and data. That's something that, I suppose that's something that what you're building can help with because you can explain, like you said, the cause and effect side, but also how do you approach that just now with clients? Yeah, it's true. And, uh, and, and this is a good point because a lot of the clients, they, 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 they are accountable for their models because, I mean, to some degree, we, we started very heavily within the financial sector, uh, which is an area where you have a more mature way of approaching uh, data science than, than other, other industries. And the, the main concern that we hear is we want to go into machine learning, we want to develop artificial intelligence solutions, uh, but we don't want to stick to black box solutions. We want something that we can understand and we want something that we can audit uh, because when, when things go wrong, they need to be able to have a nice detailed explanation that they can share with stakeholders as to why things went wrong. So we, we work a lot with clients, not only in producing models that are very good, but also to make sure that they trust their models and to have their domain expertise as well as being part of the model. Because oftentimes, uh, machine learning models also do stupid things because, you know, there is lack of data or because there are periods where, you know, weird things happen, like uh, the COVID period where uh, relationships flip because of exogenous reasons. And then they want to have the ability to come in and say that, look, no matter what happens, if, uh, you know, this company uh, becomes more levered, uh, if if they have a lot more depth in their balance sheet, then I don't want to invest in it. You see what I mean? That these are the sort of relationships that are make sense for a human being, but sometimes they are violated uh, within a machine learning uh, sense. And uh, and then these are the sort of things that we do for client first, understanding their problems, like what is the specific KPI that they want to target, and then secondly, try to work with including their domain expertise and then producing solutions that are actually explainable at the very end to make sure that uh, basically all these edge cases are covered in case something extreme happens. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Just getting them involved and in, in lots of communication is, is the 
probably the best way rather than trying to because I think it's probably still quite common for small data science teams to have a loose understanding of the problem and then run away for a few months and build something and never really talk to anyone in between and mm. potentially solve their own problem or just have a slight like you said just like a slight irregularity mm-hmm. and then that messes the whole thing up yeah it's true and and uh, that, that that happens quite a lot indeed and, and you have a, quite a lot of clients in which they they've been relying on legacy models for a while that were not built having robustness in mind but were rather built to you know i have this objective function let me try to maximize it and then that's it there we go here's a model and then it doesn't perform well when you want it to and and this is the issue because the majority of the cases the model it does pretty well but then on those very few cases where you know you really really rely on the model it completely sucks so uh this is this is something that you you need to be aware when you're building a model which is that like when do you really really need the model and then secondly when you really need that model is it gonna do well uh which is something that you 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 only understand when you talk to the people and then you try to understand their kind of business context uh, because oftentimes there is a bit of a disconnect between like basically the the first impression that you get and the actual reality uh, behind the business because they, they they speak a different language right so making that translation is not always uh, uh, a straightforward task for the data scientist yeah, and how do you and the team at Causal Lens go around, like the, the kind of buzzword just now is ML ops, but like kind of approaching your work so you can, it's kind of scalable and, and repeatable? Like, is that something you guys are focused on, or is it in the pipeline? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, let me talk about ML ops, right? So the uh, the idea about ML ops is the following: is that you you produce a model, you produce a solution, the solution is going to become you know, it's going to move from, you know, that notebook or that kind of rudimentary script into something that is a robust implementation and uh, can be monitored. So we, we, we're we very conscious about the fact that models, they typically have a life cycle, right? It's not that you produce something and it's there for maturity. You need to continue monitoring. So typically what we do is that we try to understand, look, for the business user, how often are you going to be looking at the model? Is it going to be something that will make systematic decisions or is it going to be kind of flowing into kind of like a larger stream? So depending on, on the way that the business user is going to use the model, uh, we decide on how to actually productionize it. So we may actually go ahead and then build a dashboard, something very tailored to that specific use case, or we actually create some sort of API endpoint in which they just get that, you know, number that will flow into their systems and it's going to be something in there. Well, the most important part is what is going on in between, which is whenever the model makes a prediction, you need to compare the prediction with the reality. Uh, and operationalizing uh, that process is quite important because you need to be able to understand at which point you go in and then you say, uh, look, I think that the model is not performing as intended. Something may have happened. In the meantime, some change of dynamics or, you know, just uh, the markets have changed completely. Uh, and then you need to intervene and then cut that model, produce something else, or to, you know, just rethink your strategy altogether. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and I think there, there's still a lot of work kind of going on in, in that kind of ML ops space. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that changes. Um, and kind of final question, uh, and one we always like to ask on the show is around kind of building teams. So I'm sure you did this at, at Goldman Sachs, um, but but now more so. Um, you mentioned already how kind of you're leading the the charge at, um, at Causal Lens, um, and you guys are kind of growing pretty rapidly as well. So in your kind of first year there, how has it been growing the team, and and has there been anything you've found? either in your previous career or now that has been kind of like something that stood you well when you've been hiring, like a kind of top tip for hiring maybe? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the team has grown very, very rapidly. Once I joined, uh, at the time that I joined, uh, we had uh, five people within my team. Basically, you know, each person had, had, had their hands completely full in terms of, of serving clients. Uh, and then we figure that if we really want to expand, if we want to, to you know, uh, bring in more clients, we needed to triple the team essentially. Now the team has uh, 15 people, and it's it's been quite an amazing experience actually growing this team because you, it's it's not often that you you get the opportunity to, to train uh, fresh uh, graduates. Also, bringing people with a lot more experience as well, who somewhat understand uh, and have some type of domain expertise uh, into some area or other. Uh, but I think that let me, let me put it away right. I think that the, the main thing that I've noticed is that diversity matters in ways that are not easily quantifiable, and and I, I don't mean diversity in the kind of crude, you know, straightforward sense of the word. I mean, like, uh, uh, I have people who grew up in different parts of the world who have different levels of experience and who have been, uh, who have experienced kind of uh, working environments that are very different all the way from banks to other startups to, you know, fresh out of bachelor. Uh, so getting these people together and then uh, creating groups in which each person can kind of benefit from the other expertise, uh, that's crucial. And in addition to to, uh, to diversity, I think that giving people the ability to uh, essentially have their own ideas and then work on their projects, uh, I think that's also quite important because once you once you're tackling a subject which is essentially basically a new area of research, uh, you never know when or where the next innovation is going to come from. So it's very important for people to have an outlet so they can uh, you know ask their own questions, work on their own ideas, and then try to come up with something new. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And you mentioned bringing in graduates. I think that's one of the areas where I feel like um, companies still kind of get it wrong with with data scientists is that you can get some really incredible people who've done something like a physics PhD. I mean, they don't even, they don't even have to have went to university, but just for argument's sake, that they're kind of natural problem solvers and they understand large we're working with large amounts of data quite a lot of the other skills can be taught it's like those things are kind of critical so yeah i think a lot of companies still i don't know they keep looking for these people that have got five years experience of machine learning where they could probably save themselves a lot of time and money by just kind of simplifying the process a little bit Hmm. yeah absolutely and and we we also need to recognize that not all machine learning experiences are equal that a lot of the times the machine learning process is 
incredibly boring and incredibly <laughs> and uh yeah you you like uh i, I mean not all machine learning is created equal, right? So you can become a, a data scientist by being able to write, I don't know, 100 lines of code in Python and basically copy everything from Stack Exchange. And there you go, you you can go work from from for any kind of e-commerce building churn models. Uh, it's incredibly easy nowadays to become a data scientist who can actually contribute to add value to a company. Uh, but but this is not necessarily what we're looking for, right? What we're looking for is not the ability to basically recreate solutions, but to go out and build something that's completely new, that's, uh, you know, completely different from anything that exists out there. And so for that, I, 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 I really don't think that having extensive machine learning experience in, in that sense of the word is... A, a that beneficial. I think that the ability to ask questions and then you know have, be creative enough to propose hypotheses and test the consequences of these hypotheses. These are the sort of skills that we're looking for. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense, and that's a really good point about it not all being created equal. Nice one. I think we will leave that one there. So thank you so much for joining. It'll be really cool to see how the company kind of progresses, and also um, we might get you back on as uh, the the regulatory piece probably evolves. Because I'm sure it will. But yeah, thank thank you for coming on, and I'm sure uh, people will enjoy this one. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure talking to you and happy to come back to discuss regulations because I'm sure that this is going to be a very, very difficult topic to, to tackle in the future. Thanks, Andre. Thank you.